Welcome to Real Crime NYC, where you'll hear real New York City crime stories told by real New York City cops. We'll also discuss some hot topics that are in the news that have a law enforcement angle. I'm Pat. Join Chris, Bill, and I for this episode of Real Crime NYC, where we'll continue our discussion of the murder of four college students in Moscow, Idaho. Guys, what do you got? So since we last discussed this, a couple of things have come up. One of the parents had come out and said that their uh, child's wounds were more significant than the other person that was in the room with them. There were major tears in the body. And the significance of that is what Chris was saying during the last podcast that we had is that that's blunt, brutal force to the body that caused those tears in the, in the skin and the organs within that body. Yeah. So we've always seen throughout the years, it, it's easy to pull the trigger. The shootings, a lot of times gang members or uh, unfortunate incidents that happen on the street, robberies, things like that. But to get up close personal with somebody's space and drive uh, an edge of the weapon into somebody's body, especially when it's in their home, in the victim's home, there has to be some sort of anger there, potential history between them that generated this anger. It's an intimate relationship uh, between the two people that's driving it. There's always exceptions, like Pat said, to the rule. You have uh, people out there, it's you know, serial killers. But I don't think we've seen that yet here. We haven't seen a subsequent murder that falls anywhere close to this. It's been a significant amount of time. We haven't seen that yet. The police and the investigators in Idaho haven't connected this to the other incidents in the past. So we don't have any connectivity to anything else. At this point, everything is pointing to somebody they know somebody who knows the house and some sort of relationship between one of those victims and the perpetrator. You would think that there's usually a jealous rage that would drive somebody to do such a thing. So you have to look into the personal lives of all four victims and see who were they dating. Pat had said who had gotten kicked out of school and why did they get kicked out of school? It just takes a lot of time to go through all these pieces of evidence. Yeah. Who are they text messaging in the hours and days prior? Who are they calling? Uh, who are they with? The other thing that jumps out to me is, is if this major damage was done to these bodies, that takes a lot of strength. Four people in succession, and he's able to do it. Uh, I would say it's, it's most likely a male. And I would also say that was probably a substantial edged weapon. And it's not at the scene. I think it would have to be substantial enough that it didn't break and that he continued to use it in four different events. If it was at the scene, it'd probably be obvious. I mean, unless they completely missed it, and I don't think they did, that weapon's probably no longer at the scene. Originally, the garbage at the scene was taken away by sanitation, and police had to track it down. So how thorough was that crime scene search done? I've never seen a line search. I didn't see the canine coming in there. So I don't know how confident we could be in that a thorough search was done of that house. I was at a crime scene in Chrisywood Air where there was a murdered body, actually two murdered bodies, and a seasoned investigator was looking through the crime scene for the murder weapon. It was a knife and missed it. And it was right next to the body. It was in a bag. And sometimes you get tunnel vision. You got a police department that doesn't normally handle murders. Uh, they're very inexperienced, as you could see from some of the media outlets have reported. They missed a glove on the scene. We don't know the significance of that glove. A retired detective from California comes in during the Thanksgiving break, he's looking through the crime scene and he sees within the crime scene tape by the garbage pails, a black glove. The significance of that glove is unknown at this point, at least to, to the outside people. 
I'm assuming they took that glove in. They did DNA on that glove. They're going to do DNA for the wearer. It could be a news person, could be the criminal, could be the murderer. So, Bill, that stinks to me like a rotten fish. If that crime scene is still a crime scene, it should be locked down. Nobody should be going in and out of that crime scene. Well, Pat, I really think it should still be a crime scene. I, I mean, I know we've seen them remove property from the house recently until they have a good suspect, until they have the case in order. They're going to need to go back and forth into that crime scene, the things that weren't important that are now important. And that's the whole idea of putting that tape up and locking it down and securing that scene. So you can go back and forth. You don't want to relinquish the crime scene. You don't want to open it up. Uh, then it's too late. But once you have control over it, once you have a foot post standing on it 24 hours a day, you could come and go as you need as the investigation unfolds. If you look at how we process scenes, when the investigators get there, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to put the tape up. They're going to put PPE on. They're going to put Tyvex on so they don't contaminate any evidence. And they're going to do a walkthrough. They're going to walk through everything, the yards, the interior, every floor. Uh, and they're going to get a good overall idea of what happened. You know, if there's video available, if uh, the squad has any any further information, any background, uh, they're going to have a good idea of what needs to get done. Uh, but it also changes as the days go on. Uh, now, once the tape is up and everything is secured, they're going to take overall photos. So that what they did, they just documented everything, things that aren't important today. Tomorrow, they're going to go back and look, was that glove there? We'll go to the photo. Was that glove there? It may not have been there. A media person could have just thrown it or wind could have blown something behind the lines into the scene. Could be dropped by accident. It could be dropped as plausible reasons. By a police officer, by a reporter. Chris, one of the things that you've mastered in your crime scene searches is the line search. One of the first things you would do on the exterior after you put up the crime scene tape is do a line search. Gather enough of personnel, let them line up walk along slowly, methodically, looking down and raise your hand when you find something. If they would have done that on this case, and I'm saying if that glove was there, and that's possibly the suspect's glove, the murderer's glove, or it could be anyone's glove, but if it was there from the time the murders occurred, they would have caught that on the line search. Now they have to go back. They have to look at video to see, do they have any capture any video prior to the murder, after the murder, and when that glove was deposited there? Yeah, if you remember, one of the tricks of the trade uh, we all used during our time was uh, you would have the crime scene and then you would have the real crime scene. I always say are on the side of making it bigger than you need. Well, you put that tape up around your crime scene, your real crime scene, what you're locking down, and then you go out another 100 feet or so and you put more tape up. So the people who actually breach that first line, they're actually not in your crime scene. They think they are. And they can be stopped before they actually do any damage to the to the real crime scene. Uh, unfortunate that you have to do that, but human nature is people want to get in there and look. Yeah, if, if you're uh, if you're not making an enemy at every scene, you're, you're doing something wrong, and that's with the best interest of the investigation in mind. Because people are curious, you know, they mean no harm. They they want to see what is going on. Other police officers, the media, the public, everybody wants to know what's going on behind those police lines. Sometimes you have to tell people to get out. You have to forcibly remove them at times. It's just nature of the beast. One of the things that 
also just came out was that the authorities had said they begged the hands of the deceased. And the importance of that, besides giving the public confidence that the investigation is being handled properly, the significance of that is those hands being begged, that it would be a paper type bag, it wouldn't be plastic. You would take that bag, put it over each one bag over each of the hands. And what that does is it basically preserves any blood or DNA evidence under those fingernails so that now the pathologist gets those bodies back in the uh, morgue. Now they'll either clip the fingernails off or take the fingernails off entirely and they'll process those fingernails for DNA. What you're going to have under those fingernails are, you know, besides dirt from your, your daily activities, you're going to have blood from yourself, from when you're cut, from when those uh, victims were stabbed. And you're also possibly going to have DNA from people that you had contact with. And DNA is very sensitive. Many cases have been solved by the victim scratching, grabbing the murderer by the neck, by the arm, by the face, hitting the suspect. Another important thing is how you transport it to the morgue. You need to make sure that those hands are not below the body because blood tends to pull, but they're in an upward position above the body. The importance of keeping the arms elevated or the hands elevated is so that the blood doesn't pull into the fingernails. Because if the blood pulls into the fingernails, now you're going to have a saturation of DNA on those fingernails. You're going to have the victim's blood going into those fingernails, saturating the DNA in there, making it just much more difficult. With that, Another thing police should be doing is collecting DNA elimination exemplars. Most of the time, you're going to get a partial DNA profile. You're not going to get a complete profile with all the loci, all the alleles that are needed to develop a, a complete uh, DNA profile. So if you do get a partial, what you want to do is collect as many DNA exemplars from people that may have had contact or, or suspect, you're going to collect DNA suspect exemplars. So now you can compare that partial DNA profile under their fingernails to potential suspects or to uh, people that you could exclude because they're, they had contact with the person. So there are, there are different ways to collect that DNA, right, Bill? I mean, sometimes you get a uh, voluntary sample. You ask someone for their DNA and they give it. Other times you get a what's called an abandonment sample where someone discards something with their DNA on it and you'll collect it. Sometimes you want to surreptitiously go and, you know, surveil someone for a length of time, take an item that they've been handling or, you know, a cigarette butt. They go out to walk the dog and smoke a cigarette. Maybe you, you take that cigarette butt or they drink uh, from a can or a bottle. Maybe you get that can or bottle, keep it under observation until you could take it without them knowing it. And uh, that's the other way. Many times we'll get DNA on a case like this. On a case like this, you're playing hardball, Pat. You're getting suspects, potential suspects. And, and again, a suspect is someone who your gut tells you possibly have committed this crime. That's generally what a suspect is. They were in the area. They had access to that home. There's a possible motive for them to have committed this crime. Those people you want to speak to, and you also want to get a DNA as a suspect exemplar. And as you had said, there's many ways to get their DNA, uh, whether they voluntarily supply that DNA to you, whether you get a court order for that DNA, or whether you get it from, we call it an abandonment DNA, whereas you're speaking to them, they leave their uh, water bottle behind, they, they throw out a piece a gum. One of the things that, that people find frustrating about this case is it's taken so long, it's taken so long. Well, as we know, that's that's the untrained view of it. 
a lot of times it takes patience for these cases to go. So for instance, if, if they're heading in a direction and they think they know where they're going with it, and they just don't have enough for probable cause yet, a lot of the things that they're doing right now take time. So patience is, is one of the best virtues they could have at this point. Let's think about uh, things that take time. The DNA tests all take time, especially if there's a large volume of them. They're doing uh, analysis of cell sites to see which telephones and electronic devices uh, communicated with those cell sites. So like with that a time frame, knowing a time frame narrows that amount of data down significantly. But again, that takes time to get all those records, compare them all and do the analysis. I know we have software that does the telephone analysis for us now, makes it a lot quicker, but it still takes a lot of time. The other thing is the electronic devices that are at the scene. When you, I'm assuming there's Wi-Fi, these are college students, they use computers to do their college work. So I'm assuming there's Wi-Fi in the house. You know, are there any devices during the time frame that were asked to join? Like, you know, sometimes you step into someone's house and you get an alert on your phone. that says, you know, would you like to join this Wi-Fi or give me the password? You could connect to this Wi-Fi. Well, those devices are communicating to each other and it's possible to figure out by the, the unique identifiers which electronics were communicating with each other. But again, that's something that takes time. So the fact that it's taking a long time, it's frustrating and that's human nature. But sometimes it takes patience to make a case go. And sometimes you got to give everybody that push to make the case go. The value is knowing the difference. Yeah, Pat, it's definitely not uncommon to take months to build a case here. It's definitely not uncommon. It, it definitely takes a long time. Um, and like we discussed in the past, uh, the alarming part is that the family isn't comfortable with what's going on. And I think that's what draws so much concern is when the father's on TV and he's basically begging the public uh, for help, for people to get involved. Yeah, that that's uh, I I can't help but think that's also part of the way he's he and the family is is learning to deal with this this nightmare probably feels like he's taking some control over an uncontrollable situation and he's doing what he can for his his child you know our heart goes out to them what can you do the only thing you could do is assign someone to them give them as much information as, as you can without screwing up the investigation try to help them as much as you can through this this nightmare that they're experiencing one of the things that gives us hope that the Moscow Police Department has more information than we know as the public is that the captain came on yesterday and said that he wanted to hold back on information because he wanted to ensure that there was a successful prosecution. Usually that talk, successful prosecution, comes from the district attorney. When you're talking successful prosecution, it means you have a suspect. It's usually somebody that knows the person. You have enough evidence. You develop probable cause, or you feel you've developed probable cause. And the district attorney wants a little bit more to go forward with the prosecution. Let me explain. So let's just say this is a stranger. There's DNA underneath the fingernails. That DNA comes back to a stranger's profile. The district attorney will say that individual did not have access to the victim and they'll go forward with that. But if a person is known to the person and let's say their DNA comes back under the fingernails, they had contact, they need more information. They were in the area because they live in the area. They need a little bit more evidence. So that talk there gives me a little bit more confidence that they have somebody in mind, they're eyeing somebody, and they want 
to just build up a little bit more evidence on it. And it could, the evidence could be DNA evidence. It could be video evidence. It could be a witness. To me, that's what it looks like from the statement that they gave out yesterday. Well, that's where that patience I was talking about comes in. If they jump the gun and ultimately the case isn't strong enough, what have you gained? Nothing. And you want to solve this case and you want to give people closure quickly, but not at the expense of the murderer not being prosecuted. So you're right, Bill. Uh, block by block, step by step, you build the case, make it as strong as you can. If it is somebody who has normal interactions with them, the forensic evidence, yeah, it's going to place them there. But when? They could have had that interaction at any time with them. So again, step by step, block by block, uh, they're doing the electronics, the cell sites, the forensics, all of this stuff takes time to build a legitimate prosecutable case. So I wouldn't read into this that because X amount of time has passed that they're not doing a good job or that they're not going to solve this. I still have you know, faith that they will absolutely solve this and prosecute the murderer or murderers. Well, that statement gives us a little, little bit more confidence in that they have more information and in, that they're leading on to. And that they have a main suspect that they're looking at, or suspects. I mean, this is so violent. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if more than one person uh, did all these stabbings. Yeah, it's definitely reassuring. But now, how do you uh, how do you go forward from here? What do you recommend for other college students to do? If you you have a kid out in college, that's all you're thinking about right now. If they're away at school, you want to make sure they're home for for Christmas. What do you tell them? Yeah. So what complicates this a little is the fact that they're not on campus. You know, if they were on campus, you have campus security, you have video, you still have the same college hijinks and shenanigans going on, but uh, it's in a little more structured environment. This is a private house off campus. So uh, what do you guys suggest for uh, for your your young adults that are out there at college and off campus uh, residences? How do you stay safe? Think about how many college kids, thousands upon thousands of college kids are in off campus uh, residences. They're in these apartments. And they're concerned. Their parents are concerned. They're concerned. They're asking the question, how do I prevent myself from being a victim of a crime? How do I prevent myself from being harmed? There's a lot of different advice. I could read off a a few of them off the top of my head. These college students had uh, locks on their doors, the individual doors, with a pin code that they'd punch in. I would change up that code whenever you break up with a boyfriend, whether you're, you're having a fight with a friend and they may know that code, I would change that code. They know that code. They could easily access that room. That's great advice. I would make sure that you walk in pairs. Uh, We say this all the time. Make sure that uh, you're with somebody else. Now, in this case, all four victims, they were in pairs. And it's just mind-boggling how all four of them were killed. And there was no outcry. There was no 911 call. There was no screaming. Maybe there was screaming, but nobody heard it. Uh, They were out in pairs. They were at the food truck in pairs. They were at the parties in pairs. And it still happened. But I think by being out in pairs, it just lessens your your likelihood that you will be harmed. Yeah. If you go out together, you come back together. And uh, it's almost like being a soldier. Leave no man behind or woman behind. Never leave a friend that you went out with alone after you leave. Sometimes easier said than done, but you go out together, you come back together. One of the other things, and I know that college students are very hesitant. uh, I know my kids are very hesitant to this is cameras. These college kids don't want cameras up, but I think in this climate, I think it would be a good thing. There's different types of cameras. There's the doorbell cameras, and I don't want to mention the specific name brands, but there's some really good uh, camera systems out there on the market right now that anybody could buy that you could put on your door 
uh, you could put it on your individual door, you could put it on the front door, you could put uh, standalone cameras, that if you install them, you'll have a better sense of uh, security with who's coming and going in and out of your dorm room. Yeah, I think this is all great advice. Um, and this works great for strangers. And that's what, when you think about everything you're saying, none of that happened here. They did travel in groups. They, uh, they were home. It's almost like they were comfortable in their own home with somebody in that home that they knew that all these recommendations kind of didn't apply in this situation. For all we know, they may have invited the murderer in. Exactly. That's my point. The, uh, are they comfortable with the situation as, as the night's going on? Even though the windows are locked, the doors are locked, is that person there with them? Well, you don't know whether the windows were locked or the doors were locked. That's another recommendation is, you know, just periodically check the windows and doors to make sure that they are locked. One of the things I would advise as a safety hazard is you just want to be careful if you're going to block that door or you're going to block the window. You always want to be aware that it could possibly be a fire hazard. So you don't want to go to a certain extent where you're preventing yourself from getting out of that apartment or that room if there is a fire. But you also want to just make sure that you regularly check the locks on the windows and the doors. Another important thing here is uh, report suspicious behavior to authorities. If there's somebody that is acting a little odd, a little weird, uh, somebody that kind of makes the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up, report it to authorities. It's no harm in doing that. Always know your surroundings. You have to know your surroundings. My last recommendation would be there's an importance here of designating a driver, just somebody that is sober, who knows the surroundings, who could make good judgment decisions and get everyone home safe and sound. Yeah, a lot of people aren't going to want to hear what I have to say right now. But once you get past the point that you've raised a responsible young adult, and you've given them that safety awareness that they're always aware of their surroundings, which, uh, you know, for us cops kids just innately have that. The world is what it is. And sometimes there are just things that we cannot, and I hate to say it, but there, there are things we cannot protect our children from. And this might be one of them. So at this point, I think we've covered a couple of updates uh, on the case. And uh, I'm sure we'll be getting back to you with more as the case unfolds. Thanks for joining us for this hot topic on Real Crime NYC. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. We'll see you when we see you.